0: Dot org. Enjoy.
1: Hello, everyone. My name is Frank Golding, and I'm chatting today with the co-authors of a wonderful book, The Slow Evolution of Foster Care in Australia, published by in 2018 by Palgrave Macmillan. This is a book that I know has created a lot of interest here and in, in Australia and in a number of countries. Let me introduce the two authors. <clears throat> Dr. Nell Musgrove is a social and cultural historian whose work focuses on the history of child welfare in Australia. She has a particular interest in 19th century archival history and is histori- in historical approaches that connect the past with social debate and justice issues in the present. Hello, Nell. Hello and Dr Dee Michelle is a feminist theologian and social researcher with lived experience of the foster care system in Australia she has a particular interest in the ongoing impacts of foster care for those adults who've been in the system as children hello Dee
2: hi Frank
1: now first question what prompted you to write this book now
0: as some of the major responses to um, some national inquiries into historical child welfare practices um, were getting going in Australia. It started to be clear that there was a real gap in the history in relation to foster care. We were starting to know more and more about different institutions, but there was still very little happening um, in relation to foster care. And as a child welfare historian, I understood some of the challenges around doing that history, but I really thought that it was time. And then uh, as Dee will probably tell you next, um, our paths crossed at a fortuitous time for um, doing this history collaboratively.
1: Good. And how, how did you go about the project? We
2: did a combination of approaches. We did archival research, and Nell took the lead on that. We also did oral history interviews and we interviewed a large number of people from different groups. So we interviewed people who had been in foster care themselves and that was probably the largest group. But we also interviewed foster carers and we interviewed people who'd been foster carers in the past, but we also found that current foster carers were coming forward and we interviewed them as well. And we interviewed, it was the smallest group, but quite an important group. We also interviewed people who'd been children Uh, biological children in foster care families too. But then we also had a look at the the representation of foster care across time and Nell did a lot of that through looking through the newspapers and noticing, and and I guess Nell you talk more about this, noticing how there are fewer stories in the Australian press about foster care than there are about orphanages and children's homes. And And we also had a look at fictional representations of foster care over time by going through the Australian Literature Database, the Oslit Database, and again, noticing that there wasn't a great deal about foster care in that database as well, and having a look to see what sort of stories were told over time.
1: Yeah. The title of the book is quite intriguing, isn't it? The Slow Evolution of Foster Care in Australia. Why did you choose that title?
0: Well, I think that we were reluctant to say that nothing had changed over time. But as we were working on the project, it became clearer and clearer to us that whether we were looking at the 19th century or the mid 20th century or much more recent history, there were so many powerful similarities between um, the things that were going wrong for families and children linked with foster care. And that didn't only mean for foster children themselves, although that was really important, Um, but the same limitations for foster parents, uh, the same things that were challenges to providing good systemic support and all of these kinds of um, elements of foster care. um, We just kept finding these parallels across time. But without wanting to say that nothing had changed, I guess our interest was in sort of saying it's been effectively two two steps forward, one step backwards for a really long time. And part of the strategic approach of the project of doing this long history, that is going back to the 19th century and then continually insisting on reflecting on the very recent past and its connections to that longer history um has sort of been our belief in the importance of showing this kind of slow slow change over time yeah
2: And if I could just add to that, we've got that question mark about whether it's just like a family, because the early proponents of foster care absolutely wanted children to go in a family-like situation. But, um, you know, how often do families reject their children? Some families do, but children in foster care get rejected more often than any other group of children in the community and one of our stories was with a woman who's now in her 60s Priscilla who was moved between a children's home and foster care um, 60 times you know during her childhood and in the end it was the children's home that felt more at home than any sort of foster care family and there was another poignant story that when you talk to people who who are much older there was one story Grace who loved her foster care family who took her in uh, during school holidays when she was in a children's home and she absolutely adored them and felt really well treated but at some level still didn't feel as if she actually belonged and there were stories of different presents when she was a child but as an adult there were different experiences too so when her foster mum was very ill and almost dying nobody told her about that and so it made her it brought up those feelings of not really belonging and then there's another story of a 17 year old who was never allowed she went into foster care at 17 and she was never allowed to be at inside the house when the foster carer wasn't at home so it's not entirely like families you know necessarily is was our question mark around that
1: yeah just go back a step and uh, you interviewed uh, lots of people who were taken into foster care what were some of the common reasons for that
2: a lack of community support often when families had separated, particularly for prior to the 1980s and 1970s before we had support for single parents. Mm. Um, so if women were on their own, they were often unable financially to care for children and they would go to orphanages or children's homes or state departments looking for support. Sometimes that resulted in them permanently losing their children. What they were looking for was help. And, and temporary help, but sometimes that meant that the state took over the care of those children. Often also we're talking about prior to the 1980s, times when men weren't expected to care for children. So if they had separated or if if wives were ill or if wives had had, um, had disappeared, which sometimes happened, then the men either felt incapable of caring or perhaps didn't have the financial support And so they would then look to foster care, sometimes with grandparents, but then if the grandparents weren't able to do the caring, then they would be uh, looking to put children into foster care.
1: Mm. And now from from a historian point of view, foster care, of course, uh, um, started with the boarding out system when the big institutions were seen to be failing or or not providing uh, the kind of outcomes that uh, authorities wanted.
0: Yes, I think the origins of foster care are both philosophical and pragmatic. There certainly were people in the 19th century Um, who, as Dee's already suggested, were saying, you know, a foster care would be much more like a family for children. We would um, not be producing some of the problems that we see in um, young people leaving these large institutions. At the same time, there were also people talking about it making better workers because while you could train children in an institution to work in an industrial kitchen, you couldn't train them to be domestic servants in a small home in the same way as you could. So there are competing philosophies in terms of what, um, whose interests are really at stake. But I would also say that um, there was a more cynical, pragmatic agenda as well, because, The numbers of children who, because of poverty, were flowing into child welfare systems meant that they needed to build a lot more infrastructure if they were going to continue institutionalising children in colonial Australia. That was going to be expensive. And in some ways, foster care was financially attractive to people. Yeah. That's right. It it was actually cheaper even taking into account that at least in the early decades of foster care, foster carers were relatively well paid um, in terms of the cost of their work. So I'm I'm, I'm reluctant to entirely position the move to foster care as a philosophical one.
1: Yeah, sure. It it would have been uh, uh, problematic uh, getting enough people to put the hand up to become foster carers. Uh, You you interviewed those people, some of those people. Um, What are the kinds of, uh, what do they have to say about why they took up foster care?
2: Some of them took up foster care, Frank, because they were aware of other people doing it. Not somebody I interviewed, but just a story from my own childhood, was that my, my foster mum took up foster care because of a friend of hers took up foster care. And yeah. back in those days, and we're talking the 1950s and 1960s, many women didn't go out to work. And so they were kind of left occupationless. And so this gave them something to do. And it's a challenge now because we do have many women who have gone into the paid workforce and therefore we actually do have less foster carers now. But for other people, it was kind of accidental. One of the older women that we interviewed said it started because one of her children's friends needed a home and he moved in and stayed for a while and then she went and formalised that arrangement and ended up taking... Other children in as well from that particular family. And I noticed that trend of accidental, even with contemporary foster carers. So there was a young couple that we interviewed Matthew and um, his partner Samantha, and they were in their early 20s and were just asked to take in a 15 year old. That 15 year old needed support. He was depressed, he was self harming, and he did well. And they were really pleased that. They went overseas for a while, came back, and this young man was now at university, and um, so they ended up taking that up formally themselves. So they had that very positive experience, and and now they do foster care quite Mm. a bit. I was also struck by a woman called Jo, who's a contemporary foster carer, who said that in her family, doing something for the community was what her family did, and so her contribution to the community was to take in foster children as well. So there was a variety of reasons. Sometimes it was church organisations as well. So the people were connected to church organisations and then the church would encourage people to take up foster care. So quite a variety of reasons, really.
1: Hmm. And we we all know that lots and lots of people who are in institutional care have written memoirs about being in, in care, inverted commas. Is the same thing happening with foster care? Are we getting many accounts of uh, first-hand experience, written memoirs of that experience?
2: We are now, but that has taken quite a while and it seems to have um, fitted into a larger international trend, at least in in so-called Western countries, of what are called sad stories or trauma stories or what some people call misery-lit which is a trend of people writing about very difficult childhood experiences whether that was in their biological family or whether that was in institutions or in foster care. So when we've gone back and had a look over the 19th century really there wasn't very many accounts of foster care but back in the 19th century around about the same time as they were talking as activists were talking about instituting Uh, boarding out or foster care. We notice lots of stories that push um, foster carers as these heroic figures in those and often the foster children came from very well-off families and then lucked out and discovered that they had wealth in their background and these marvellous inheritances which most of us who were in foster care would probably have thought was a wonderful thing but not very realistic. So it didn't accurately represent, you know, what was going on with foster care. So, and it's around about the middle of the century, we have very prominent writers like Kylie Tennant, and she was writing in the 1960s, and then a little bit later, Olga Masters. They were writing about foster care, but they were kind of writing about, I think they were writing protest stories about foster care, really, where they were looking at the system critically outside of the system, doing more ethnographic sort of work. But when we analysed book reviews and commentary on that, nobody seemed to pick up that these were protests about the system and so nobody was really questioning it. And I guess one of the earliest examples we found about somebody writing their own story about foster care was not until about 1978, a woman called Monica Clare who was an Aboriginal woman and a semi-fictionalised story of her experience in foster care, probably 1984 when Bernard Smith, who was a very successful academic and prominent Australian, he was probably one of the first who published his his memoirs. And then Walter Jacobson starts off in this kind of trend in Australia, which fits this larger international trend. Um, he wrote about his story at Parkville, an institution in Victoria, but also in foster care in rural Victoria. Then after that, the stories kind of fit in with some of the big inquiries that we had, so the Bringing Them Home report into the Stolen Generation here. Rosalie Fraser published her story in 1997 and she was in foster care with a white family. trend of publishing your own story does tend to fit both with inquiries and with these larger publishing trends overseas and a self-publishing trend
0: too and no. if i
2: can just add that that uh question
0: around what it means for people to tell their own stories was something that was really important to this project and unresolved at its end so if i can give a shameless plug to our next piece of research together which people can find at our website more than our there is ongoing work around this question of life stories of people who experience foster care, but other types of separation from um, families as well. It's a really important um, theme that came out of this work.
1: Yeah. I noticed in some of the examples that you gave Dee just a moment ago that there's a crossover, isn't there, between being in foster care and being in a, a large home uh, or an institution. Uh, and people going from one to the other. So that, that that's a complicated kind of story.
2: It is complicated and it raises two things. One that Nell and I found right at the beginning that there's no typical story of foster yes. care, but also that many children did not go directly into foster care. They did go into some sort of institutional care. Um, or residential care or what we might call a group home, and backwards and forwards, so it's rare for a child to go straight into foster care and stay there for their in the one placement for their entire their childhood
1: yeah. let let's have a look at uh, archival research and the way in which the archival research connected with the rest of the project. Uh, what were some of the challenges in in that?
0: One of the challenges of archival research in foster care is that it is just so much less documented than its counterpart, institutional care, just because of the way that it operates. Now, there are all kinds of problems with the sorts of records that institutions like orphanages and reformatories created about the children who lived in them because they're being created for administration and they're being created from the top down so they don't give us really a sense of what it was like to be there through the eyes of the children but they do give us certain amounts of information about what was going on that we just don't have for foster care um, and where there is archival information about foster care, like correspondence related to specific children or letters that are held that were sent back and forth between um, the department and children or the department and parents. There's a lot of searching for those things. It's very time consuming because they're scattered through enormous collections. So all we can ever hope to do is get a sample of what's there. But we did look at thousands of records spread across thousands of boxes. Um, And so we have a pretty good sample uh, from the available material, but I'm sure there are so many more stories out there that are still waiting to be told just because of that difficulty of finding the sources.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, We talked earlier about the title of the book, The Slow Evolution, and suggested change and we talked about that briefly, what are the things that that um, have or haven't changed? What, w- what would you highlight in terms of that question of change and non-change? One of the early chapters of the book
0: tells the stories of two boys who both died in their foster homes, one in Melbourne in the 1890s and one in Queensland in the 2000s, so over 100 years apart. And they were both sad stories in and of their own rights. But what was so striking was that in both cases, there were so many similar things that made their suffering go unnoticed by the system and made their stories end so sadly. So one example is the shortage of appropriate foster homes. In both cases, these were boys with fairly complex needs. So um, they obviously are described very differently in the records because they're, uh, you know, living more than a hundred years apart, but they both had what we might now characterize as intellectual and learning disabilities. They both were sent to homes that, the departments of the time were on record as saying they knew weren't ideal but that they didn't really have any other choice but to find somewhere and that's again the nature of both of the systems was that at the time of both boys seeking foster placement there weren't either adequate foster homes or adequate other alternatives and so they both end up being round pegs forced into square holes and and there's tragic ends for both of them and and the fact that this continues to happen in a system which has supposedly been radically transformed by therapeutic foster care and by the influence of professional social work i think we have to ask some big questions about how much we really have reinvented
1: foster care. Did you want to add anything to that, Dee?
2: Yeah, one of the things that I think has changed is that in the early days, the foster care advocates didn't want the children to maintain contact with their birth families, with their biological families at all. They wanted them separated completely. And and it wasn't really until the 1940s in Australia that it was recognised this was not a good thing, that children wanted to maintain some sort of contact with with their biological families. Uh, So even though we recognised that in the 1940s, you know, for most of my childhood in one foster care placement, I didn't see any of my family. So we might have recognised it. We didn't always implement ongoing contact arrangements. So And I know these days we have what are called access visits, we didn't have anybody who talked about those access visits with their foster in their foster care placement so I'm talking about stories that I've heard subsequently
1: I know it's still contested. Mm. Uh, Just um, thinking of the of the current moment is foster care still the preferred option?
2: It's certainly preferred over residential care, which is what we call um, living in some sort of group arrangement now. It's certainly preferred. And thinking back to um, your comment about whether it's cheaper, Frank, and, mm. and Nell's comments on pragmatism, there's no doubt that foster care is cheaper than residential care. The figures for residential care are, are rather huge, you know, into the hundreds of thousands per child per year versus thirty, forty thousand $40,000 per year in foster care. But a very significant change that we noticed is the trend towards kinship care. So to extended family members more often than not, grandparents, but not necessarily taking on that care. And again, I guess if we think about that, there's a philosophical reason for that. Um, Outcomes do seem to be better generally for children in in kinship care, and they do remain very, very important, of course, for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander children, remaining Mm -hmm. connected to culture. Uh, There's a kind of a, uh, but there is that pragmatic element as well, because often, unless families are able to negotiate it, they will receive less support than financial support than do mm-hmm. foster carers as well. So they can and be that. And we we did interview a woman who was essentially um, she was a grandmother, so essentially she was a kinship carer. But she was arguing with the state that she should be treated as a foster carer because when her child moved from Western Australia to South Australia, she lost a lot of financial support and um, a lot of other support in terms of medical support and uh, professional support. She lost all of that and suddenly she was being required to fund it herself. So she was arguing that she should have been treated like a foster carer, not like a kinship carer.
0: Mm.
2: But that's definitely the trend across the country is that there would now be more children in kinship care than in foster care and the, the, the smallest percentage of children are in some sort of residential care arrangement
0: seems to be a move towards informal kinship care and in some cases that's to the benefit of everyone involved but uh, in my current research I'm also already anecdotally hearing um, examples of um, welfare systems being interested in informal kinship care as a way of keeping cases off their books. And so, you know, we need to, I think, as historians and, and people mindful of the history of this, be alert to those kinds of trends as well because they might sort of skew the statistics, the official statistics to make us think we're seeing um, changes or lack of change um, that are actually being masked.
1: Yeah, yeah. So uh, what what would you like Australians to learn from your historical work. This is a, a, not a, a common area for work to be done in. So you're pathbreaking in a way. What would you like people to, to take out of your work and build on, perhaps?
2: One of the things that I would very much like people to take on is because foster care had, Nell and I talked about at the beginning, was kind of invisible in Australian society. So we wanted to increase the visibility, absolutely, of foster care. But in doing that, we wanted to raise the status, I guess, of foster care kids or people who have been in foster care so that rather than very often this group of people are treated as if they won't amount to very much, to bring some attention to that and, and get people to value all children equally rather than say we've got you know this group of children who are in some sort of out-of-home care who should be valued less, treated less, not have access to the same opportunities as other children.
1: Hmm.
0: And I suppose the other thing that I would really hope people would take away from it is a new way of looking at issues facing us in the present. Because I think if we understand that there's almost nothing new under the sun in terms of the challenges of foster care, uh, that's not to say that you know history gives us all the answers. I, I don't believe that. But I do think that it can help us frame conversations about today that are much more deeply informed and hopefully much more likely to get the results that we're looking for, because most things have been tried before and we could predict some of the pitfalls and some of the opportunities. And I hope that that's something that will come away from this work too.
1: Yes, I come come from a perspective of uh, activism around residential care. Uh, and I can see that it's much easier if you grew up in a big institution to gather together a group of people of like minded experience or like experience. Um, it must be more problematic to have activist groups around foster care because of that dispersal, that, you know, fragmentation of experiences. Any, any development there?
2: Um, Absolutely I have to agree with you and having grown up in foster care I think I knew one other person who had been in foster care and then adopted and that was a you know i remember that i said that my foster mum knew somebody and so that was the child mm. that i knew apart from that i didn't know anybody who'd grown up in foster care i think organizations like create foundation assist enormously with that so they've been in, in operation for about 20 years now and provide some opportunity for children who are in foster care to connect with each other at least up to the age of 25. I guess the difficulty or the challenge with that is that foster carers might not always want them to be connected with other people, so they might not offer that as an opportunity. Whether there's active, it, I guess that leads into what Neil was saying about our current project. I think that most of the activism still has been up to date, Frank, with people who've been in institutional care, and you're absolutely right, that's much easier. So I think it's going to be a little bit slower for foster people who've been in foster care to come together and I guess my other point on that is that sometimes there seems to be this division of course between people who are in some sort of informal care and we interviewed a number of people and strikingly I remember being at work and talking about our project a number of years ago now and a woman coming up to me and saying well I was in foster care But the state didn't organise that foster care. So does that mean that I'm not a part of your project? No. And her grandfather was the person who'd organised that foster care. And Nell and I talked about that and said, well, of course, they're included in our project. And we had other people come forward too who had not been formally organised through the state for foster care. But they were definitely in some form of foster care so that's I think that's a difficulty too if we say well you're only in foster care because the state organized it then that's that creates another barrier between people coming together and acting as activists so yeah. not a lot of move, movement yet but I'm hoping that we'll see more of that and find more of that as as time goes along
1: yeah now the, the title of your book is, yeah, this is a, a book for Australians but I dare say that there's there's some interest internationally I know there's been interest internationally what what would you point to if people said uh what in your book is valued in other western um uh, nations about foster care
2: i think the commonality between some of the you know we've said there's no typical story but there's definitely some themes that are international and Mm. abuse of children in foster care is one and we have some instances of that in our story. So that, that's an international story that children have been often removed from risky environments and then placed in risky environments, really, yeah. or environments where they were abused and they weren't supposed to be. So the state essentially being a, a hypocrite where that's, where that's happened. So that's it. that is, seems to me to be an international um, happening. The separation of siblings, as well, I know, is is a is a huge theme in the United Kingdom at the present time, where, and and here as well, in Australia. So, um, siblings, families being broken up, um, and f- children being dispersed amongst various families, and not necessarily being kept in contact with each other uh, very much at all. So, I think there are, there there are at least a couple of themes there. Yeah. Um, And I think the failure the general failure of foster care I remember reading one academic from the United States who said the failure of the system to listen to the voices of children had contributed to the failure of the system in the United States so that's another thing that children uh, tend not to be listened to and I know that we're trying harder at doing that these days but sometimes it's not possible because they're too young but do we do, but do we really take seriously when a child says i want to go back home to my biological parents and so the state says no you shouldn't be there but yeah. the child still says i want to go back home
1: yeah universal question yeah well and d it's been fascinating to talk to you and we could talk all day about these topics i'm sure we haven't exhausted uh everything that could be said about your book. Uh, Thank you so much for chatting to us. Um, This is a much needed book, The Slow Evolution of Foster Care in Australia. Thank you, indeed.
2: Thanks very much, Frank.
0: Thank you for listening to Shusai Podcasts. You can find more materials and features from the Society for the History of Children and Youth online, shcy.org.